thanks for inviting me to do this. And it's great to have an opportunity to take uh, this uh, presentation I did at the Montana History Conference in Bozeman just a few weeks ago and uh, get a little more time here. So that's always nice. Uh, you only have like 25, 30 minutes uh, to do a presentation at the History Conference. So this is, uh, I think I have, what, two hours? Is that right? That's <laughs> what it'll take. So. Uh, Better get started, huh? <laughs> I think I need a drink real quick, though. But... Yeah. Okay. Is that good? Keep an eye on that. Make sure I crash in two hours. It's got to last. All right. So the topic is homicide in uh, territorial Montana. And uh, some people might be going, why? Why are you doing this? Um, I'll get to that. But um, I just want to just dive into ter to the Montana territory. Uh, the territory doesn't actually, uh, isn't actually founded until 1864, but right from the beginning, one of its um, preeminent citizens, or uh, one famous early miner, John White, who founded, the, founded gold at Bannock, he was murdered uh, less than a year after that discovery in Bannock. Uh, he and his partner were murdered near in what's, I think, present-day Jefferson County. Um, that was so kind of one of the first... Um, quote-unquote famous murders in Montana history. Of course, we know about the road agents uh, allegedly killing maybe 100 people uh, when they were also trying to, to steal their belongings and um, kind of take what they wanted in, in uh, the rough-and-tumble um, Bannock, Virginia City area and up the trails that led to it. So then, of course, the vigilantes uh, kind of put a stop to that. And they killed about 20-something, maybe 28 individuals over a course of maybe six months in uh, from 63 to 64. Um, so th this is the early stuff that often uh, gets a lot of attention. And uh, my, one of my reasons for doing this, a uh, little more intensive study and over a longer period of time, is to try to put all that uh, in context, try to uh, tell the larger story, not just get... Um, drawn into the vigilante affairs, um, although that's very difficult to avoid, as you'll see. Um, I want to tell you about at the beginning here, one particular week in December 1866. It turned out to be uh, an extremely violent week in the, the mining camps of Montana. Uh, December 14th, in particular, was a horrible day. Uh, Helena, early morning, the body of Lewis Truck, who was a German miner, uh, had a claim on Dry Gulch. Um, his body was found on the floor of Carson Brewery. Uh, very suspicious um, case. Uh, the, the newspaper actually thought at first that it was probably a murder. Later they said that it was probably a suicide. We don't really know. The coroner's inquest uh, came back saying that was, he was killed by unknown, an unknown persons. They, they didn't have any evidence uh, one way or the other, so they ended up saying it was an unknown situation. So I'm counting it as a, as a homicide here could be a suicide. Uh, as we go through, and as I went through the records and the, the newspapers, uh, you find a lot of suicides along with uh, homicides. Uh, so that's a whole other topic um, that I, maybe I'll get into a little bit, but now, one interesting thing of the, I found in the research. Uh, also in Gallatin Valley that same day, uh, Newton Little tried to break up a fight over a, over a woman between two, two uh, roughs at a, on a ranch. And he got, uh, he got shot, and he was almost killed. The newspaper thought that he would surely die of his wounds, but he actually ended up recovering. So that is not counted as a homicide, but still happened this day. Uh, the, big, the big thing that happened was in Cave Gulch. And this is the largest shootout in Montana territorial history. Uh, leaves five dead. There were uh, at least nine men opened fire on seven men who were building a cabin on a plot that they the nine men thought was theirs. And they had actually had a case pending, as far as the newspaper said, uh, in the courts. But uh, that morning, uh, December 14th, it came to, um, as the newspaper said, the, the nine men decided to trust in the wisdom of Henry's rifle instead of waiting for the courts to settle it. The, the men they fired upon were actually in the process of building a cabin on the claim. Uh, and it was a little too close to their cabin, about three, three or 400 feet away. Uh, they fired from their cabin, from the protection of their cabin, killed five men. Um, this is a huge affair. Uh, it actually doesn't happen in the counties that I'm particularly studying here. It's just 
across the river, across the Missouri River. And I don't know if everybody knows where Cave Gulch is roughly. It's roughly where Canyon Ferry is, just uh, one gulch down from Canyon Ferry. Um, and it's on the, on the east side of Missouri River. Uh, and was a, uh, had been a gold discovery earlier that summer in 66 and was populated by quite a few uh, miners at the time. So the, the men actually uh, were pursued by a posse, a, a vigilante group from Helena and the surrounding area, came and apprehended these nine men. They actually apprehended some of the other men that were wounded and shot at and brought them all back to Helena, the vigilantes did, decided that they weren't going to kill them, string them up or anything. They turned them over to the civil authorities. Uh, the men were guarded very closely and taken to Confederate Gulch, which was the uh, county seat of Marr County where the event happened, and waited for trial. The, act, the trial was actually, the venue was changed to Helena, so the trial took place here. Uh, it's a big, big affair. And um, I'll just go ahead and tell you that, that the men actually got off. No one was, um, was convicted of this crime. Um, homicide of nine people in one, one uh, very five-minute stretch of, of gunfire. Um, one I'll give you a little bit more detail about and actually read some of the account uh, from the newspaper. Uh, just, just about six weeks after that, after that, uh, I'm going to go back. I did. There we are. December 19th, just a few days later, in Gallatin County again, a group of uh, ranchers had had enough of a particular, um, uh, a particular uh, horse thief, cattle thief, and they tracked him down finally. Um, this guy was notorious, and uh, they cornered him in a patch of, of willow, lit a fire, and he came out and tried to shoot, and they all opened fire on him, opened fire on him and killed him. Um, so another example of frontier rough justice, uh, just a few days after that terrible December 14th. But then six weeks later, we have the, the Hodge Moore shooting affray. Um, these are typically in the newspaper uh, called shooting affrays, for whatever reasons, but... Um, let me uh, tell you about this one in some detail, so bear with me here. Uh, the usual quiet of that portion of Orofino Gulch, known as Roosevelt, about four miles from this city, from Helena, at the point where the National Mining and Exploring Company is located, was rudely broken on last Wednesday morning by one of the most, uh, one of the most sickening and heart-rending shooting affairs that generally falls to the lot of the journalists to chronicle. The affray took place between 8 and 9 o'clock in the morning, and resulted in the severe wounding of Professor Hodge, his son, Mr. Russell Hodge, and a man named George Moore. The reception of the news here created a profound sensation among all classes, and our reporter immediately proceeded to the scene of the calamity to glean such facts in regard to the occurrence as would enable, uh, as, enable us to lay before our readers a statement that could be relied upon. It appears from what he could gather from the various parties that the circumstances of the case are about as follows. Professor Hodge is the agent and general superintendent of the, get my other pages here, of the National Mining and Exploring Company of New York, having charge of the company's mill and property situated in Orofino Gulch. And this is a substantial mill that had just opened recently. So this is a pretty um, respected person among the mining class, among any, you know, that's really all the class that is in Helena at the point. But, uh, so it's, it's interesting, this is a, a, a superintendent of a mining company. So it's a little, um, it kind of got everybody's attention more than just kind of a shootout between claimants in a, at a particular uh, claim jumping situation. But, uh, so Professor Hodge having charge of the company's mill and property situated in Orofino and Grizzly Gulches. And as such had, had bought shortly after his arrival here a timber ranch for the purpose of supplying, uh, supplying his various works over which there had been some dispute. And the case was in the courts for adjudication. Again, cases in the courts. Up to the present time, there had been no trouble about the matter and probably would not but for the hasty, hasty action of both parties. What led to the affray, however, was, was the fact that Moore, George Moore, and some others had cut down some trees on what Hodge considered to be his ground, but which the others denied his right to claim under any circumstances. Moore lived in a cabin close by, and the wood had been cut up into lengths preparatory to being either used or hauled away. On the fatal morning, the professor took two or three teams, and accompanied by his son and several others, 
proceeded to where the wood was and commenced to load up. Either anticipating trouble or for the purpose of scaring the other party, the professor and his son, together with one other of their party, were armed, the former with a double-barreled shotgun and the two latter with, we believe, carbines. While, the act, while in the act of loading, Moore and another man came up to them and told them to desist, and the latter got on one of the loads and commenced to pitch it off. And while in the act, the professor hit him on the head with his gun. The accounts of what transpired after this are somewhat conflicting. But it evidently appears that some high words ensued between Hodge and Moore while they were standing close together, and that the former uh, pointed his gun at the breast of the latter, who shoved it away, saying as he retreated some distance, don't shoot me. But a minute or two transpired after this when they both fired simultaneously at each other with almost fatal effect. The professor being wounded in the center of the breast and more having six large buckshot in, the semi, in a semicircle from an inch to half an inch apart around the region of his heart. It must have been at, the, at this juncture that Russell Hodge, the son, participated in the proceedings in defense of his father, for almost immediately after, the, after there were two more shots fired, one by young Hodge and the other by Moore, both likewise taking effect, the ball from the former's carbine lodging in Moore's groin, while the ball from the latter's revolver shattered Russell's wrist fearfully. The wounded men were taken to their respective cabins, which are but a short distance from each other. And this all sounds very similar to the, ca the Cave Gulch affair. Okay, and surgical aid was summoned and immediately, immediately from the city. Go down to the end here, the, the paper comments. It is useless for us uh, to speculate on this matter or attempt to enter into an argument of the cause which led thereto. We have but given the, the bare facts in the case, leaving it for the proper courts to decide who was in the wrong, with the strong conviction that two of them may never appear before an earthly judge, and the trial of their, of their cause will take place before that dread tribunal from which there is no appeal. Now, it turns out that George Moore died of his wounds. Uh, he was wounded twice. Or, um, and Professor Hodge was feared to, to be uh, quickly dying, mortally wounded. Uh, but he did actually recover. Um, and his, his son, Russell, uh, had actually had to have his arm amputated at the elbow because his wrist was just shattered. Um, so the Hodges uh, recovered. And... Uh, there was a, quite a trial. It was probably the, the most celebrated trial in, in early territorial Montana at the time. It was held in Virginia City. Um, and Hodge was, uh, was acquitted. And Professor, Professor Hodge was acquitted and uh, his son was, was not charged either. So uh, they, had a, they had a party that night and Professor Hodge and his wife quickly left the territory. Um, but Russell Hodge did stay around apparently to kind of uh, manage the, the affairs of the, the mining company. So these... These stories of this particular very brief period of time, a couple month period in 1866, 67, kind of give us a window into uh, one of the most violent times in Montana territory besides the, the vigilante business, which is also had, had been going on since 1863. Uh, so we see patterns, of course. Uh, also happening very closely on the heels of this, some of you may know of, uh, John Bozeman was uh, murdered by parties who we don't know exactly. Um, at the time, it was said that it was uh, four or five Sioux Indians or um, uh, so we don't, or Blackfeet, I'm not sure. Um, and, uh, and then there recently has been, uh, well, not recently, but there was always a story that his partner, Thomas Cover, who was with him at the time, possibly killed him uh, for various reasons. Um, also, then we have Thomas Francis Marr death, uh, which you know, you assume is probably an accident, but others have speculated, and there were stories that, that uh, surfaced of, of plots to kill him. Um, so these things happened in, in this, uh, April, and then the summer, Mar died in uh, July 67 as well. So all this is um, getting us into that, the, the violent times of Montana Territory. So why, going back to this question, why even look at this? Why do we need to study uh, homicide in, in early Montana? Um, I'm trying to understand kind of the territorial frontier society, and that's kind of where I'm coming from with this. I didn't really have a, you know, it, I was sort of lured into this topic, so to say, um, and prob partly by vigilante violence and trying to understand that and 
putting it into context of what, you know, what was this experience like for the people that, that were, lived here, for the miners, for your average everyday miner, or perhaps a, a farmer who came into different parts of the territory. Um, what did they experience? How, did they, how were they affected by this kind of violence? Um, also, we have, you know, the very pretty well studied uh, conflicts between Indian and whites in, in Montana and in the territory. And how does, how does that come into play here? Is that, is that a factor at all in vigilante justice taking place or, or any of the other um, you know, gunfights over just you know, trivial things and gunfights over very serious uh, property issues perhaps? Is there a relationship? I don't know. Uh, and also looking at you know, the, the early territorial Montana is male dominated. It's, 80 to 90 percent in mo uh, male in most of these, most of the camps. Um, so you know, violence is pretty much, uh, especially lethal violence, is attached to to the male um, in a very very large way. When you uh, and I was, I guess I sort of knew that already. But once I was studying homicide in in uh, the United States as a whole, uh, the you know the rates of male homicide is, is just hugely over anything that, uh, that women experience. Um, so, you know, what's going on there and is that, is that maybe the primary cause of this? I don't know. I wanted to find out what, what's the connection there. Uh, and then adding, like I said, adding context to the whole vigilante, the history of vigilantism. It's very popular, but I wanted to kind of break through that, the initial look at vigilantism and try to put it in its context. Um, kind of practical considerations in studying this. Uh, it's easier to quantify a murder or a shootout where somebody dies or you know, uh, some kind of homicide. It's gonna show up in the newspaper. It's, there's, sometimes there are um, local records and like coroner's inquests and so on. So these things are easier to quantify uh, 150 years after the fact. Um, also, we have newspaper digitization, which is you know, now we have a, quite a few newspapers available to browse through and look at and even search, do some word searching. So I don't think I, could, I would even want to attempt this study without being able to do word searches for things like murder, um, shooting, uh, you know, all these different terms that I could put in and just do a quick search and then browse through those, those results. Um, and I, I kind of wanted to test that to see how, how that would work. Um, and I'll have some comments on that um, near the end here too. Okay, so the, my gateway drug to getting into this was the whole issue of violence in the American West and um, kind of, you know, reading the sources that are out there, the history books that have been written in the last 20, 30 years, uh, kind, of, kind of drew me in uh, and then really snowballed into, you know, this, this is something that I could really do. Uh, there was there's kind of a battle going on, there has been for uh, maybe 15, 20 years between a couple guys, uh, Robert Dykstra um, and uh, him taking on um, maybe new Western historians, or at least um, newer historians, younger historians, a different generation. Robert Dykstra wrote the classic Cattle Towns book, where he studied uh, five Kansas cattle towns. And um, he talks about the violence that took, pla took place there. And his idea is that it really wasn't that much violence. It's very overblown that violence in the American West is, you know, whipped up by the whole, all the mythology surrounded by the Old West and Western movies. So he, he's always been, since he wrote this book in the 60s, he's been on that, you know, hitting that, uh, that claim, saying, you know, it's, it's, it wasn't as violent as, as it's made out to be. Um, but uh, from the 1990s and on following, partly because of the new Western history, um, more social historians wanted to, to study. Claire McKenna is one uh, from California, um, did a, a major study of, what he did was a case study of three counties uh, in different parts of the American West. And he chose uh, Gila County, Arizona, Los Animas County, uh, Colorado, kind of south central Colorado, um, and Douglas County, which is Omaha, Nebraska. And he studied these pretty, pretty detailed, um, went into coroner's inquest records primarily, and then supplemented by newspaper accounts and um, uh, death registers, uh, any other kind of local records, uh, criminal cases, course, um, and compiled a lot of data about these places from 1880 to 1920. And he came up with the conclusion that the, these areas were extremely violent, uh, and that, that lethal violence, in particular homicide, was 
was uh, very, um, very prevalent in these places, especially Gila County and, and, and uh, Arizona and Colorado County that he studied. Uh, the, the Omaha County was very interesting because he has there's a population of African Americans that mostly came from the South, and a lot of, of violence in, is uh, tied to Southern roots, and so that that was a, another aspect of it. But uh, a little for Montana's case, the, his looking at Arizona and Colorado is a little more similar to our circumstances. But, uh, so he's always interested. McKenna is interested in uh, race and how race and um, and these homicides intertwine and whether or not justice is actually served, whether or not there's discrimination against perhaps Indians who commit homicide or are there more Indians being killed in these kind of things. Um, also along the lines of, of Hispanics in both Colorado and Arizona in his study. So he's, he's rather interested in race as it intersects these, the topic here. Um, and it's very interesting. His work is, is very detailed and um, very statistical. He's gathering data and presenting it. Uh, and so you see a lot of influence from him on what I'm doing. Oh, Rand Randolph Roth is uh, kind of the other another big, big name or a big person. He wrote American Homicide, which is a very thick 600-page tome. Um, 2009, he came out with that. Uh, and that covers the topic extremely well. And his main point, uh, he has several different uh, reasons for homicide to go up or down that he's that he had uh, in studying different regions in, in the United States um, but he, he the most interesting thing is that he ties it to um, people's a population's sense of stability in government or or trust in government and that's the thing that I, I think comes to play here in, in Montana territory and so I borrow a lot of what he's looking at there he presents it as a, it's a hypothesis. It's something that needs testing, uh, and that certainly influenced me in wanting to come up with a study to say, let's, you know, let's look at early territorial Montana, which really doesn't have a very good government at the beginning, and is developing government and the justice system over those you know, couple decades. And let's see if, you know, if homicide is high when, you know, when government is not very well established and decreases, and, and how that correlates. Um, so that's a lot of his influence on me there. Um, Robert Dykstra and, and Randolph, Rand, Randolph Roth have really gone at it in the last, uh, well, decade or so uh, from, since 2003. They've had four different articles back and forth in a couple um, you know, journals, historical journals. Um, and it's, it's interesting to read. There's a lot of back and forth. Um, I really, I really feel that Roth has proven his case that, that you know, you, what Dykstra likes to do is kind of undermine the statistics and say, well, you're studying very small areas, and so your conclusions are not necessarily going to be as solid as they would be if you had a larger population to study. And, you know, there's something to that, but he, I think he takes it much too far and discounts any, any uh, validity in the stu studying smaller populations like we have in Montana Territory. Um, and Roth defends, you know, this kind of the statistical position of, of uh, that, you know, you can do this. There are statistical methods that, that uh, can give you a certainty, a percentage of, of um, validity to your results. And uh, if you study a small population over a long, longer period of time, um, your accuracy is going to be much, much better. So um, that's, that's kind of where that debate comes down. Um, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty sure that, you know, I appreciate Dykstra's uh, challenge, but I, I really side with the, f the folks on the other side that uh, are trying to compile the data and information on how many homicides took place, what kinds were they, um, and let's, you know, it, this, is a, this is a very um, high rate of homicide in these areas. And I'll show you uh, kind of, first let's get into just a brief definition. Homicide in this is, is any, any killing of one human being by another uh, that cannot be clearly identified as accidental. So an accidental death in a mine uh, or uh, in whatever circumstances, you know, if a, if a gun goes off, that's, that's not a homicide um, I don't know, if it's an accident, if it's clearly identified as an accident. But any other, other killing uh, is, is going to be counted as a homicide, um, even if, like if it's a, a negligent uh, homicide situation, which is a couple that 
that I found uh, that I did include in, the, in calculating the, the results here. So um, murder is, you know, it's a little more, it's much more limited term that generally is going to be dealt with in legal terms of, you know, you're convicted of first or second degree murder in a court. So I'm um, talking about, it, this isn't really a study of murder necessarily, because uh, that's a little, probably a little more limited. Um, there's more, much more um, homicide taking place than actual murder. Because would, would you say that, you know, vigilantes killing uh, a thief for whatever crime is a, is a murder? I wouldn't say it's a murder necessarily. It's a homicide. They're, they're killing him. Um, but they have clear reasons and they, you know, it's a different process. So it's kind of technical maybe, but, uh, but homicide is a thing I think to, to study and what, uh, just want to make that clarification. So when you calculate homicide rates in a particular location, uh, it's, it's a mathematical thing. Uh, you try to estimate the number of homicides. So you're going through and trying to count, count them up. Um, and you divide that by the estimated annual population of adults. And we're only talking about adults here because if you try to count children, when you're trying to, if you're trying to compare a place like Montana Territory where there really aren't that many children to somewhere back east, your rates are going to be uh, different. They're going to be affected by the difference in the number of children. So you really only want to count adults. So you have to uh, average out an annual population in an area for the adult population. So it's the estimated homicides divided by the, pop, the annual population. Uh, and then you multiply that by 100,000. And that's the kind of the FBI um, statistical uh, standard in, among sociologists and uh, historians, anybody who's kind of studying um, homicide and reporting on the number of homicides like uh, FBI statistics come out every year for places all throughout the United States, uh, and they, they do it in this fashion. Uh, they talk about the number of homicides per 100,000 population. So that's kind of the standard. So I'm going to introduce you to that. A, a high rate of homicide is considered about nine, nine people per 100,000 um, killed. Extremely high rate would be 35 in the neighborhood of 35 people per 100,000 and, and higher. So kind of get that number lodged in. Nine is, nine is high, and that's generally what the United States is at. We're about nine to, to ten right now for like the past 20, 30 years, and even most of the 20th century. Uh, we've, we've had a pretty high rate. Um, and so a modern example, um, pulling this from, I think, Randolph Roth, uh, Miami-Dade County was the number one homicide uh, capital of, of the United States in 1980. Um, 35.3 um, per 100,000, and the United States as a whole that year was uh, 10.7. So, all right. So, the initial plan on this, doing this research, uh, was to uh, select a couple counties for a case study, and that's kind of this initial thing that I'm I'm reporting on. This is kind of preliminary. Uh, this is a larger project that I want to keep keep doing, keep gathering more information and data on. Um, Lewis and Clark County. And Gallatin County are the ones I, I chose. Lewis and Clark uh, is very characteristic of an urban mining area, of course, at the time. Um, Gallatin County is much more characteristic of an agricultural, ranching, um, farming area, probably the number one farming area in early territory, um, and, and then growing into yeah, really the, the agricultural center for the, the, the territory in the early statehood. Um, but also has the urban supply center of Bozeman, so it's it's an interesting place to look at, too. It gives us a diversity of characteristic places in Montana to look at. And so, you know, no Virginia City. Sorry. <laughs> uh, I did want, I wanted to avoid the vigilante thing, you know, the center of vigilantism in Virginia City in these early years. So I just pushed it to the side and say, okay, somebody else can look at that. And, you know, there have been other books. Um, Alan's great book on uh, decent, decent orderly lynching is... Is very good, not really statistical um, in its approach, but uh, very good in covering the details. He's, he's very, a very good researcher and storyteller. Okay, so the sources I used here for Edgerton, which was Lewis and Clark County at the very beginning, the first few years, uh, and then becomes Lewis and Clark with an E until about 1901 or something when they figured out that Clark was spelled with no E. Uh, and you see it on all the records, you know, Clark with an E. Uh, Coroner's inquests actually exist in Lewis and Clark County, and the only county that I've found in Montana with 
coroner's inquest so far. I haven't checked every single county, but I've checked Madison, Gallatin, um, Mar. I don't think they have any, um, and Lewis and Clark. Trying, and Jefferson doesn't have any. Uh, so these don't exist in general, unfortunately, because coroner's inquests are the best for trying to track. Because you know, anytime a body shows up, there's a, a dead body is produced by whatever uh, event. A coroner's inquest is is impaneled, and and they give a thorough investigation as to why this person died and give you facts and details about the person. So they're, they're wonderful records. Um, we happen to have them for Lewis and Clark, which is great. I didn't have to travel far at all for that. Uh, unfortunately, they're not really complete. And when you look at them, they're, they're out of, they microfilm them out of order. They include some, uh, some of uh, Shoto County, early, Sh early Shoto County from the 1870s. It's about at least five or six coroner's inquest uh, documents in there from Shoto County. I don't know how those exactly ended up in Lewis and Clark counties, but they did. Um, and then there's just a lot missing. You know, there's some years where there's none. And when you, when you get into the 1880s, it's starting to be, you can see it's a lot better. The coroner's inquests were a lot more thorough. They're doing a better job of uh, accounting for these. So uh, that's what you'll see. I've really focused on the 1880s for, for those records. Uh, I use the newspapers, and I use primarily the Montana Post. Um, it is completely digitized, the whole run of it from um, 1864 up to 1870, I believe. So I uh, didn't, haven't completed going through all that. I got, I've gotten to, I think, 1860, uh, 68. So still have more to go looking through the post. Um, Gallatin County only used the post, which you know, could cause some, some undercounting perhaps. OK, so progress report. On, these are the years that we're going to look at real quick here. Um, for Edgerton County, I've got a snapshot at the beginning, 1865 to 1867. And then again, with those coroner's inquests, uh, looking at 1883 to 1889. So that's right up to the end of the territorial period, because we become a state in 1889. Uh, Gallatin County, I just have that first period um, looking at the Montana Post. So I have collected uh, data for other counties as I've been going through uh, the Montana Post. So I have quite a bit collected. Um, I don't think it's in a state where I really want to present it. And um, I'm kind of trying, this whole process of coming up with this study is trying to figure out what's the best way to, you know, is it, does it work to just look at counties? Or do I need to look at kind of a pick, choose a region? You know, how, how does that affect um, the results and stuff? And so we'll see that coming out when I'm showing you with the results. But, uh, so I have some uh, up through the 1870s and 1880s as well. But uh, what I really want to do ultimately then is, after the data is kind of finally collected, then to go back and try to put together something that would be published, like an article or whatever, that uh, would have you know, other newspaper accounts backing up the, the data and make it more um, kind of a fuller story, of course. So for Gallatin County, this is just a, a list of that period, 1864 to 1867, um, the beginning, uh, Gallatin County is not very heavily settled at all um, for several years. And so you have uh, conflicts between early settlers and Indians uh, coming up. Um, that's what the first several are. Uh, there's a band of Sioux that come in and, and a raid in 1865, and they kill a couple people at a couple different locations. They have some shootouts with uh, locals who are, just, who are actually doing some work uh, on a ranch, and the Sioux just come upon them. Um, so these aren't really, I don't count them as a kind of a war, a warfare thing, where you would say, well, it's war. People are going to kill each other. This is a, a raid. The Sioux are coming in to kind of show their presence, perhaps. And, and they're, they, they come in contact with some ranchers, and they end up killing some people. So um, uh, the other ones, and this happens in Bannock as well early on, where settlers just end up shooting Indians because they're afraid of them. Um, for, you know, for various reasons, for reasons that we would be shocked at, I'm sure. But um, people just, just shot at Indians and, and killed them. And that's what those two cases are, are in, in, the, in the post. They were actually shot for their horses, apparently. So um, We have vigilantes, obviously. Vigilantes are not only working and active in Madison, and they actually are traveling along. And coming into different areas, uh, local citizens are, are part of the vigilante movement. Uh, so it really is more of a movement. It's affecting every county in Montana, really. Um, so several cases 
come up of, uh, of stringing guys up who uh, had probably, probably were thieves. Um, anyway, so, oh, and the very bottom there was Mr. Stately, who was mentioned earlier near Willow Creek. And we have Bo John Bozeman in here. Gallatin County went all the way over to where Livingston, you know, to Park County is today and, and beyond. Um, and then in 1867, uh, Governor Marr ends up, you know, calls up troops finally. And so troops are, are um, trying to find Indians somewhere in this area around the Yellowstone River at the time, and they don't find any really at all. But the troops get into trouble. There's fights, there's a knife, a stabbing incident. Uh, there's a, a classic Old West shootout between a captain and a, a, a younger soldier uh, where they're like near at the stable and they're shooting at each other three, four shots and they miss with every shot. Finding the final shot, the captain hits the guy and he dies. That's, that's uh, C. Dun Dunman, the, uh, that case there, killed by Captain Hart in the classic shootout. Uh, hatchet wound to the head. The case of uh, Jay Davidson was vicious, a vicious murder. Four men uh, came in and were never found, never caught. They robbed, they thought that he had a large sum of cash because he had been seen in Virginia City by them and he was followed back to Gallatin. He had been seen getting a bunch of, of money. He was going to head east to take it back, back home. Um, and he was uh, viciously killed by these men. Um, his his uh, partner or friend who was staying with him actually got away, um, ran, and ended up eluding the guys. And those four men were never never captured, never found by the vigilantes. Um, okay, another, there's another shooting in, uh, of Elk Morris at uh, Morris's store in Gallatin Valley. Another shootout, deciding something with, with guns. Um, so here's kind of the run. Uh, three homicides in 1864 down, you know, pretty... Typical range each year. It comes to um, you know, averaging out the population of the area, and these are really estimates of the population because we don't have any good counts. Um, the homicide rate comes to 400 for the whole period, of those four years, roughly four years. It's 400 per 100,000. So 35 is, high, is extremely high. Uh, 400 is <laughs> astronomically high. Uh, it's off the charts. And so this is you know, one of those cases there. Um, another, Randolph Roth did a quick, uh, a quick count of, of, of murder cases in, around Bannock in 1862 to 63, and he came up with a figure of like 1,200 per 100,000 for early Bannock. Um, there was a lot of killings, a lot of people were dying. Now that comes out to, you know, the risk of homicide for somebody is what, 1 in 250. The case of early Bannock was 1 in 50 were being killed during that 18-month period in Bannock. So this is... About four years in Gallatin, it's a, it's a very high rate of killing. Um, and, you know, if you lose, if you didn't count one or two of these cases, the number would go down a good amount, but still be very high. So, you know, it's, it's no matter, even if you, you dropped a couple of these cases and said, well, they're really not homicides, the count would still be very high. So, I, you know, people have looked at and go, well, you know, did people really, when they settled in Gallatin Valley in this time, did they feel that it was a very violent place? Maybe they didn't. I mean, they're coming from the Civil War. So um, maybe they, they just expected it to be um, a place where you could lose your life at any time. If you were a particular type of person, if you were trying to steal horses and cattle, you were probably going to die. <laughs> it's not a good place to try to steal horse and, horses and cattle. So uh, this just gets at, you know, trying to calculate the, uh, the risk of homicide at this period. And so we look at Edgerton County list. Um, kind of going to run out of time, so let's, let's move along. But a lot of, in the early, there's 11 cases of homicide in 1865, the first year uh, for Helena, for Edgerton County. Uh, most of these are vigilante uh, hangings. So their vigilante is incredibly active in 1865 in Helena. Um, and this is all very well documented in Allen's uh, book, uh, Decent Orderly Lynching. Uh, as you get into 1866, um, much less cases of it, and probably for good reason, because the vigilantes were active. Uh, they, there are a few vigilante hangings. James Daniels, very notable one, which you know, we have a photograph of him. Um, and uh, uh, there's that Lewis truck was poss possible suicide there, uh, gunshot wound to the head. Um, some others that were shootouts up in Sun River, 
John Peterson died. Uh, one case I want to read you the account of. <clears throat> I find my there it is. Is Samuel Hayes. Uh, this is Samuel Hayes. You see there September within that one week. Samuel Hayes is African American. He's killed uh, in a barber shop in Helena. And just a few days later, a Chinese woman is, is killed. And we really don't know the circumstances of that death. It is, it's a killing. She, we really don't know who did it. There wasn't any other uh, documentation about it. It's just a very brief mention in the newspaper. But Samuel Hayes' case is the only one that we have information, sort of a racially motivated killing. Uh, the particulars in the recent shooting affair, which resulted in the death of Samuel Hayes, as related to us by an eyewitness, are briefly these. Deceased had an altercation with George Washington, a barber, another African-American barber, um, growing out of some abusive language used by the deceased, which finally ended in a fight between the, the parties. Um, this is not where the homicide comes from. This is just what starts the situation. These two, two men are fighting. During the struggle, the crowd rushed in and interfered, separating the participants. When someone in the crowd cried out, hang the nigger, and excuse the language, but hang the nigger, which was immediately answered by the crowd making a rush for them. One of them was secured and marched off in the direction of Judge McCarthy's office. He, however, managed to effect his escape before proceeding many steps and ran off home. The deceased, not being so fortunate, was detained by the crowd and while held by them was accosted by the man John, Le John Leach in the following manner. You black son of a bee, uh, you drew a pistol on a, on a white man, did you? I did not, was the answer. You lie if you, say, if you say so. Do you call me a liar, said Leach? Yes, was the instant retort. Or anybody else that says I drew a pistol or carry one. Uh, deceased then walked off going down Main Street until he reached the Crystal Palace barbershop, which he entered. He had not been there many minutes before Leach approached him and collared him with one hand and with the other drew from his coat pocket a pistol and cocking it, placed the muzzle within a few inches of the head of his intended victim, repeating his former remark, you drew a pistol upon a white man, did you? Deceased answered that he did not, and threw up his hands, telling him to search him if he thought he had any weapons, remarking at the same time to Leach, my fuss was with a colored man and not with you. I don't want anything to do with you. At the same time, stepping back from him, which Leach perceived, perceiving, leveled his pistol and pointing it at the deceased said, if you open your mouth again, I will kill you, and instantly fired, the ball entering the left side below the breast. Hayes lived about half an hour after being shot. So, sad, sad case. But, um, that, that is the only um, racially motivated uh, homicide found in these, in these first few years. Um, so moving on. Okay, Edgerton County, summarized there, uh, comes out less homicidal than Gallatin County. Uh, there's, a, there's a larger population and there's a little, you know, people are more um, intensely involved in mining and more, probably more uh, active in doing that. And in and, and the downtime is when the homicides probably take place, besides uh, perhaps any shootings over um, property, which there are only a few really in the early period. So that comes to about 154 and a half people per 100,000, so one in 647 during these, these few years. So it's a pretty high homicide rate, not as high as Gallatin. Uh, so getting into the 1880s, uh, we see much less homicide in the 1880s. Uh, and a larger population in, in Helena and surrounding areas in Lewis and Clark County. Uh, you see uh, almost very little vigilante activity, really none, um, specifically vigilante. There is a mob lynching of Con Murphy, who was a notorious outlaw who was, who was uh, captured and, and uh, hung by a mob um, in 1885 out in the valley. Um, there's a couple shootings. There's one that actually takes place in Avon just across the border, which I actually counted in this case, and I'm still not sure I should count it, but a man was being, a criminal was being chased by an escapee, he was being chased by the sheriff, and the sheriff shot him when he confronted him on a train at the Avon station. Um, there's some other cases, negligent homicide occurring uh, with, with fires happening in a lodging house, uh, laudanum being given to uh, someone too much and very deadly laudanum in this case was given to somebody, um, where the, the coroner's inquest found the people to be negligent, uh, negligently involved. Um, so a stab wound, uh, 
Right here, Phoebe Rand, Phoebe Mitchell Rand in 1888, was killed by her husband, Napoleon Rand, uh, and then he uh, shot himself. So this is a, the first murder-suicide that occurs. Um, and it's also, this is the first woman, uh, actually second woman, because the Chinese woman was, was killed uh, in 1860s. Uh, but the first woman, uh, I'm, I'm counting here, uh, in the 1880s, the only one. Uh, a couple Chinese are, are involved in homicides, 1888 and 89. Uh, so there very, very much is a population still, and uh, one is a, a wound from a cleaver. Um, often Chinese are not going to be in, as much involved in, in gun, gun violence, more uh, knives and so on, but um, one of the cases is a, a shooting uh, over a mining claim. Okay, so uh, summarizing that, we see a much, much lower homicide rate, 18.2 per 100,000. So coming down from like 150 something per 100,000 down to 18.2 during this period. And you see each year, each year's uh, rate uh, starting out pretty extremely high, coming down into a, a range that is much more um, typical of a more settled area in the United States. Um, so you really kind of you kind of see this happening even that one year, 1886. Uh, you know, I haven't gone through the newspapers as well for that period, and I'd really like to do that because it's hard to believe there wasn't one homicide in that year. Um, but there was only one that comes up in the coroner's inquest in 1889. Um, so these numbers may change with more research in the newspapers. You may find more things happening, um, but still the, the homicide rate is much much lower. Um, the risk of homicide one in over 5,493, 5, um, better, much better odds, odds that I would much rather have. So, um, so kind of summing up preliminary conclusions with all this, uh, there's, there hasn't been a lot of this kind of research in the American West, but where it has taken place, we have the cattle towns in Kansas that, that Dykstra has done. And the figures there are about 129, 129 per 100,000 during the 70s and 80s, um, 116 per 100,000 in Bodie, California, which is a kind of a very rough mining camp, mining town uh, in California, eastern Sierra Nevada. Um, and then uh, the study in Gila, Gila County, Arizona, which had a very high rate of 156. So you kind of see where we're, we're coming down. Gallatin County in the, in the 1860s, 400, very, very high. Uh, even higher than Los Angeles, which in the 18, early 1850s was a very deadly place. A lot of shootouts, a lot of shooting going on. Um, Edgerton County is a little more reasonable, probably because um, the large, it's a larger population and the vigilantes are so active and so um, it's very well known that the vigilantes are there uh, and actively stringing up thieves and, and other folks. So, um, so frontier lethal violence is very intense in Montana. That's definite conclusion from this. Uh, late 1880s, lethal violence is dramatically lower. Uh, I don't know why exactly, but I think, you know, it has something to do with the government becoming more stable, people becoming, uh, you know, I really, I buy into that idea. I think it's very hard to, uh, to, uh, to prove it besides pointing out that, um, that you know, different, different places where people would show trust in government or that you can show that there is more stability in government happening. So I think it's a, it's a tough thing to show. Um, but, you know, there's other things that you might think of like uh, a person's race or, or class or, um, or where they're from or whatever. They, they don't correlate as directly as this idea of looking at um, people's trust in government and the stability of government. Uh, it's, the murder rates very closely correspond to that, so it's, there's a definite connection. Uh, it's just a difficult thing to really grasp uh, clearly. So icing, isolating counties, I think, is not optimum. I, I, you know, I have the case of the Cave Gulch stuff going on right out over in Marr County. Um, it's all part of this area of Helena and down to Gallatin. And, um, you know, trying to, you, know, you have to kind of make a, a boundary somewhere. So Counties are helpful because they often keep records or they have a newspaper that covers a county. Um, but I, I really need to kind of go beyond those, those borders, I think, in, in putting this study together. So I'm going to try to do that. Um, suicides, are, they require the attention of somebody. I, you know, there's, there are a lot of cases of suicide. There's a, a good number of, in the coroner's inquest, there was a good number of also accidental deaths or deaths in, in mining uh, accidents as well, which was 
certainly interesting to look at, you know, why that was happening or whatever, but um, suicides are, um, there's a lot of suicide going on. And, you know, we have, we, you know, modern day Montana has a problem with suicide as well. So I, something that, that I think would be really worth looking at. Um, what are the beginnings of, of this happening? You know, why is it, is it related to the mining, uh, mining rushes and, you know, the, 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 down, the downside of the rush where um, people are struggling, not making it. Um, so suicide is uh, something that happens in, the, in this, this environment. Uh, I wanted to end with more of a, a human note. So conclusion here, I have a, a letter that was written to the editor of the Montana Post, uh, 1867, and it, it was concerning a, the murder of uh, Frank Lovejoy in Beartown, Montana territory. Um, and uh, this is the letter. Uh, Editor Post, dear sir, in your valuable paper of the fifth instant, I noticed an account of the murder of F.S. Lovejoy at Beartown, Montana Territory. Nothing has occurred of late that has given me more pain than the, than the receipt of the intelligence of the death of poor Lovejoy and the brutal manner in which it was brought about. The deceased was an old and valued friend of mine, I having formed his acquaintance in the summer of 61 in the state of Nevada, and having in the winter of 63, whilst prostrated by illness and unable to assist myself, received from him all the delicate care and attention of a devoted brother, more appreciable from the fact that it was pure and disinterested, the offspring of a noble and generous heart. He was a young man of un unexceptionable habits and endowed by nature with more than ordinary intellect. He was a native of New Hampshire, and no son of the Granite State has ever fallen upon this coast who has carried with him to his grave a purer fame and more grateful remembrance than the deceased. He leaves no better man behind. Green be the sod above thee, friend of my helpless days. W.H.H. H. Thatcher, Leesburg, Idaho Territory. Thank you.